Lunatics Unite! You're listening to Let Them Eat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. I made this podcast for you because I never could figure out who to trust when it came to honestly talking about real food. When I began farming, all the people I started to read were trustworthy, but weren't talking at a basic enough level for me. That's not cool. I envision a podcast hosted by a farmer, but dedicated to normal people, not other farmers. The topics would cover big ideas that matter on a quarter acre plot of land, like you might live on. So I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and boating with your forks to support real food. Stay with me, won't you? Beetle Kill. I'll say it again. Beetle Kill. Beetle Kill sounds like a has-been 90s garage band from Detroit, but it's actually a far bigger problem than that. It's not musical at all. It's a disease killing Colorado's forests. It's spread when certain kinds of beetles have inflated population numbers that aren't killed off by harsh winter temperatures. The first time I visited Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, I couldn't stop noticing the towering mountains, blanket of trees, sweeping vistas, gurgling creeks, and powerful waterfalls. The second time I visited, I couldn't stop noticing the beetle kill. Large sections of the drive are just gray. I mean, entire mountains are covered in dead trees. And I can't describe the feeling of seeing that as anything other than sad. The beetles turn the bark a blue color by introducing a fungus under the bark of the tree that prevents the tree from repelling the invaders. All this dead wood presents a problem since a fire can hop from one dead tree to another pretty easily. There have been several companies step up to the plate who use the wood to make everything from furniture to snowboards. Kudos to them for making the best out of a bad situation. When my wife and I hiked through Breckenridge on the Colorado Trail, we agreed it was probably the ugliest part of the trip. There were these burn circles spaced about 100 yards apart where the locals had cut the diseased trees down and burned them in an effort to keep the beetles from easily jumping to nearby healthy trees. Farther up the trail, the single track meandered through forests in which the pine trees grew so closely together that branches didn't start until they were at least 30 feet off the ground. The branches weren't more than 10 feet in diameter at the widest point, and the trunks looked 6 to 8 inches in diameter. It was definitely ground zero for the next beetle kill outbreak. And it was all so, so unnatural. I can detect a sly fire suppression policy when I see one. People are drawn to beautiful areas, and when they get there, they take for granted that the environment around them 
is dynamic. They don't want it to change. Unfortunately for them, nature doesn't understand stasis. They want their million-dollar homes to be protected in the case of a fire, not realizing the ecological harm to an area when fires aren't allowed to burn through. Take California as Exhibit 1. 2018 was the most destructive year on record when a record 8,527 fires burned through the state. Northern California was declared a disaster zone. The California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection spent $432 million fighting fires, which is more money than the GDP of the island nations of the Marshall Islands and Kiribati combined. That's two countries. That summer, we moved to Missouri from Colorado, and we were almost to our new home on the afternoon of July 15th when we realized we could look directly at the sun without pain. California was 1,500 miles away, and we were being engulfed by its smoke. I'll cut California a slight break and admit that Missouri probably wouldn't have a much better response in the same situation. Our problem is that we're spoiled rotten with humidity. That's a sentence you don't hear often. One with spoiled and humidity in the same one. But it's true. Humidity or an excessive amount of water in the local atmosphere is what keeps Missouri from turning into Colorado. When you don't let fires burn, extra trees grow. And when extra trees grow, more trees compete for the same amount of sunlight. As more trees compete, they get closer together. And as they get closer together, they make it easier for beetles or fire to hop from one tree to another. Beetle kill is only a symptom of a greater problem. You might be thinking, why do we let this happen? I'll tell you why. This ideology represents the de facto ecological heartbeat of the majority conservation community. Land minus people equals better. A little math there for you. A staunch fire suppression policy is only a single tenet of this much broader hands-off ecological philosophy. As long as we don't touch it, we won't screw it up, right? Wrong. Conservationists like to claim that forests are carbon sinks and that CO2 recapture programs like tree planting are essential to our survival as a species. It's hard to pull a single example, but you'll like this one. Dr. Thomas Crowther said in an independent newspaper interview that there's 400 gigatons of CO2 stored now in the 3 trillion trees on Earth. If you were to scale that up by another trillion trees, that's in the order of hundreds of gigatons captured from the atmosphere. At least 10 years of anthropogenic emissions completely wiped out. So, trees are the magic bullet, it seems. It's true that trees are carbon sinks. I'm not disputing the science on that. If you've ever felt warm after standing by a campfire, you know the carbon is combusting. But once the trees are planted, then what? Do we just put up massive barbed wire fences with a huge no trespassing sign? Do we shout, hands off, no fires? See where this is going? Once those trees are here, we have to manage them, like the Native Americans did. They often set brush fires in California to set back brush, increase game numbers, clear hunting paths, and select against slash for the growth of certain plants. They didn't realize they were protecting the carbon sinks from giving it back to the atmosphere, but they were doing that too. UC Berkeley and the National Park Service did a study on California's forest carbon emissions from 2001 to 2010, 
and they found the forest emitted more carbon than they soaked up. We call it a sink because it takes something away from us. But California's so-called carbon sinks are broken. The drain is clogged. The system works, but our method of cleaning it is faulty. We're just not humble enough to admit it. For decades, we've let private interests control how we manage our land. We let people build million-dollar homes in the hills, resist controlled burns, and then freak out when a stray spark catches the fire load and a wildfire sweeps toward their house. This is our fault. Even though the hands-off ecological philosophy claims to be a style of management, it more closely resembles abandonment. It's our attempt to slow change in nature. Joel Salatin named this way of thinking wilderness abandonment. You'll hear from him in a little bit. Beyond being misapplied to the management of our public and private spaces, wilderness abandonment also gets misapplied to our farmland. In our context, the philosophy changes to mean that even farmland should be allowed to revert to wilderness. Here we have that same anti-human way of thinking. Farms minus people equals better. Wilderness abandonment articles are generally written to enthusiastic audiences. You'd think that conservationists had succeeded in cleaning up toxic oil spills when they announced that more land globally since 2017 had been revegetated than cleared for farming. In the U.S., we're currently losing three acres of working farmland to abandoned farmland every 60 seconds. On the scale of our farm, we'd have no land left in 2.5 hours. As educated consumers, we need to shake off our apathy and sound the alarm bell. Our biological need to eat hasn't gone away, so our farms are still as important as ever. And for every small farm that closes its doors, more business is driven to confined animal feeding operations. Rather than decreasing our carbon footprint, we increase it. Abandoned farmland can't sequester enough carbon to counteract moving that same number of animals onto a CAFO. Just think of the carbon costs of fuel for transporting the grain and animals to and from the facility. It's kind of mind-boggling. The imperative of supporting regenerative farmers has never been greater. If you live on the East Coast, you might have heard of Joel Salatin. He's the grandfather of regenerative agriculture, and he was gracious enough to grant me an interview. He basically started the North American pastured poultry movement. And I had read like six of his books by the time I interviewed him. So you'll get to hear me fangirl a little over how thrilled I was to talk to him. He's got a lot to say about wilderness abandonment, given that he invented the term. I won't say any more. I promise. Here he is. All right. Um, welcome to the Let Them Eat Grass show. Joel Salatin, uh, the man who needs no introduction. But for those of you who may not know, um, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, um, I'm Joel Salison, and uh, we I co-own Polyface Farm here in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, which is near in, in the western part of Virginia, not West Virginia, but Western Virginia. A uh, big distinction there. And uh, we've been here. We our family came in 1961. I was just four. And uh, mom and dad worked in town and paid for it. And then when, uh, when as I grew up, I wanted to be here full time. I didn't want to do the town, the town commute thing. And um, so with mom and dad's, you know, paying for it with off-farm off income, uh, 
I was able to start with no mortgage, and be and and so when Teresa and I got married in 1980, uh, we were able to, you know, to build a, uh, you know, build an actual going concern, if you will, on that land base, and it was tight the first three years. We didn't know if we'd make it, but uh, but we finally did, and uh, we produced beef, pork, chicken, both uh, meat and egg, turkeys, uh, rabbit, duck lamb and forestry products we have we have a lot of forestry the farm is um we've added another 100 acres five years ago and so the whole thing now that we own is um 175 acres of pasture and 475 acres of appalachian upland mountain hardwoods and then we rent another 1200 acres in the you know, in the immediate community wow Wow. That, it definitely makes me grateful for our farm. I mean, we're sitting on 460 acres of which probably 400 is pasture. Um, just I, some of the, I guess, differences maybe between East Coast and Midwest right there. Um, mm-hmm. And also, just so you know, uh, our farm uh, used your template and specifically for your pastured poultry movement. Uh, that was our template for starting our chicken operation. Um, so we uh-huh. we got all that from you. Um, and another question I have since, you know, you've been doing this so long, longer than most of the people in the regenerative agriculture world, is why do you do what you do every day? Like, why have you stuck it out for so long? <laughs> well, uh, I guess a quick answer is I'm too stubborn to quit. But a, a much better answer is, that you know, when we came to this, when we came to this property, this is in the Shenandoah Valley. So remember, uh, this was uh, this was settled by Europeans a good hundred years before where you live in Missouri, and so um, the Europeans did not actually take care of things very well. They took these tall prairies here and uh, and inverted them with a plow and planted, of course, crop, crops, and so. In that 200 years of European occupation, in our right here in our community, we've lost between three and five feet of soil. So when our family came to the farm, we did not have enough soil to hold up electric fence space. That actually poured um, poured concrete in in old used car tires, pushed a half inch pipe down in there in the soft concrete. Of course, settled, and then we would we would push those off the tractor platform as he drove slow down through the field and then put electric fence stakes down in those half-inch pipes in those concrete tire stanchions to build electric fence because because we were, we were on uh, solid rock. There, there was no soil. We had gullies. Well, the deepest gully we measured was 16 feet, 16 feet from, you know, from, from the, the top to, down to the bottom. So it was an extremely, uh, you know, worn-out place. And so what gets me up every day now is, at this stage of my life, having grown up here where I could, you know, walk the whole place and never set foot on a piece of uh, a, a, a piece of grass, remembering mowing hay and losing my place because it was so thin, remembering when we couldn't support 15 cows on, on 100 acres, um, remembering all that now to have in, in my short life to have watched it literally you know, go to 150 cows production, go to, you know, tenfold uh, biomass and grass production, um, pollinators, 
birds, I mean, the, the meadowlarks, the goldfinches, the uh, indigo buntings, the, uh, the, uh, the um, red-winged blackbirds that live on the, you know, on the uh, cattails and the ponds and the marshy areas. Uh, so what gets me up every day is to know, is to be so grateful and honored that I can step out and actually caress this ecological umbilical as a benevolent lover, not a reluctant partner, but as a benevolent lover and, and participate in the healing and in the abundance that this partner wants to yield. That is just an incredible privilege and an honor to be able to do and to be able to see in my own eyes the awakening and the development of the abundance is truly uh, just magnificent. That that kind of inspiring stuff is uh, what led us to start farming. So uh, now there's that, which, I mean, it's the same kind of farming that we also practice here. And it's kind of crazy farming. Like, you know, not many people <laughs> actually farm this way. And if there's this cultural concept that called wilderness abandonment that has kind of slowly crept into uh the cultural lexicon. And if you were to browse the internet, the, the weird thing is that the only articles, cause you kind of invented the term, but the only articles you come across actually like concern urban decay or the abandonment of formerly urban spaces to a more wild state. Why do you think we're so fixated on urban decay as a culture rather than farmland decay? Where's the disconnect? Well, I, I think a lot more people see her see uh, uh, urban decay. I mean, the, the the leader in that nationwide is certainly Detroit, but that's why we have the Rust Belt now. We call it the Rust Belt uh, down through the mid middle America, um, where you have all these old you know factories and things. Uh, but but you know it's through New York. It's everywhere. These old you know these old um, um, manufacturing facilities that are gone, and of course then you know then you have. The, de- the urban decay in the city, with you, with people coming out because of crime and everything else. So I, I think I think it's just what people see. People don't see what you and I consider farm decay, where where we have um, uh, the you know two of the local local diners in the in the rural town are now gone, and one of them is struggling to stay on in business. Uh, where you where you have um, uh, abandoned farms. Um, I mean, Cornell Cornell did a study about ten years ago, and they looked at the years. Um, I think it was uh, I think it was um, 1995 to 2010, 15 year period. The question was, uh, how many acres in New York State uh, have been abandoned? In 15 years, in other words, they were they were actively farmed 15 years ago. Today, they're still privately owned, but they're not actively farmed. And it was um, it was almost two million acres. And you know that's just that's astounding uh, when you think of the amount of of abandoned uh, of farmland, and that's indicative of decay in you know in the farmland uh, of America. I mean, that's an incredible number. I mean, 2 million acres that just nothing is being done. Like, do you think that, I mean, 
I don't even know if you could choose a greater impact. I mean, you have a very physical impact of, you know, there, there is that much less food being produced. But I also think there's a cultural impact of there are that many fewer people who have a connection, who have a visceral, direct connection to the land. Do you think that well, the physical impact or the cultural impact is more dangerous in the long run? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I don't know that I have an answer for it. Um, I, I will tell you that you know, if you drive, I mean, the reason New York is the country's um, biggest example of this is because they raise taxes so much and uh, taxes on farmland. And, uh, and the taxes only drove the farmers out of business. Uh, and so farmers just, just bailed out. But, and, and that farmland now, you can drive up there, and for miles and miles and miles, it's just you know, grown-up scrub. It's returning back to forest. And, 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 in fact, New England, in 1820, New England averaged 80% open land and 20% forest. Today, the entire New England averages 80% forest and 20% uh, farmland. So um, now, now, do I hate forest? No, I don't hate forest. But the notion that the land is actually um, uh, better off or the ecology is better off or even that culturally <laughs> that we're better off by abandoning the land and going to, for example, concentrated, concentrated animal feeding operations, factory farms, um, so that we can segregate the farming over here, and then that will uh, allow more abandoned land over here that can turn to wildness, um, uh, assume, assumes that farming cannot be done with ecological integrity. And that is while I agree that when we look back at our conquistador past, including the American conquistador past and present, uh, it's easy to throw up your hands and say, oh, these farmers are just destroying the landscape. I get that. I understand that. But the desperate need of the hour is to help people who are disconnected, who don't know, who don't understand, who are being fed a diet of, of radical environmental abandonment, um, uh, you know, persona to, to bring them along to help explain that there are good ways of farming and bad ways of farming. There are ways to farm that enhance the soil that actually stimulate the organic matter. Goodness, on our farm today, uh, in the early 1960s, when we took um, our first soil samples, we averaged 1% organic matter. I mean, it, it couldn't grow anything. It was just rock and hard clay. Today, we average 8.2% organic matter, and we don't use those concrete tires anymore, and all of those rock areas now have 12 inches of soil. Now, it's not three feet, it's not five feet, but it's 12 inches, and it's, that, that's a whole lot more than was there 50 years ago. And it's, 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 it's building. So to go from 1% to 8.2% with, uh, with active farming, mimicking the soil development of nature, which comes from grass, from perennials. Uh, not, the, the deepest soils on the planet 
are not under trees and they're not under bushes. They're under prairies that are managed with herbivores and predators and movement. That's where the deepest soils on the planet are. So if we want to really build soils fast, we want to move toward a prairie-type ecology, a perennial prairie-type ecology, you know, in, in, a, in a big picture uh, standpoint. And so this is, the, this is the missing thing that the typical urbanite doesn't understand uh, when, they, when they just see, you know, uh, the long shadow or cowspiracy or whatever, and all they see is dysfunctional as data points from dysfunctional farming, and they don't see data points from extremely functional farming. And, and this, is, this is why it's important to get this message out. Absolutely. Totally, totally agree. That's kind of that cultural disconnect we were talking about earlier. And one of, that, one of those other stats, which I'm just going to second, uh, when you said that New England went from 20% forest, 80% pasture, and it got flipped to 80% forest and 20% pasture. Like my home state of Missouri, this, it almost hurt my brain to think about it, but it has more trees than it's ever had at any other point in its history. And realizing that, it made me wonder because, because I came from actually a conservationist background before I got into farming. And that might be giving myself a little bit too much credit, but I was, you know, I was big into national parks and hiking. We, we, uh, me and my wife did a really long through hike on, um, the Colorado trail. And we, we really grew to love what I thought of as wilderness. Like I thought that's what wilderness was, but I actually came to realize after starting to farm that wilderness might not be what I thought it was. And so, and that's kind of like what you were just getting at. So like, is what we think of as wilderness even close to a truly wild state? Like what does wilderness actually look like? And feel free to take your farm as an example. Oh my, well, wilderness, um, the, 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 the important thing that we know now, especially, I mean, now that we have much better archaeological and anthropological, um, historical records from, you know, guns, germs, and steel, uh, 1491, 1493, fire in America. I mean, there's just, there's just a, a plethora of new kind of information in the last 20 or 30 years that show that, that, that there, there really, there's no such thing as a wild ecology in, in North America it has been manicured and managed by natives, by people, for a very, very, very long time, and um, and so they, be, because the um, the primitive diet could not depend on tillage. It all primitive indigenous diets throughout history have focused on things, on, on non-grain. So seafood that you can harvest, you know, if you're near, a, near an ocean or a lake you can, or a river, you can harvest, you know, fish and stuff uh, that it doesn't require feeding. Um, uh, and, and herbivores. So, so, see, so water, water stuff and herbivores were the two mainstays. Herbivores would include, of course, all dairy. Dairy is all herbivorous. 
uh, from from camels to yaks to sheep to I mean I'm not just thinking of cows I'm thinking of you know throughout the, throughout the world and so um, and so the uh, and reindeer okay so the herbivores um, herbivores and water food were the two mainstays of human life the annuals whether it was squash or wheat or barley or whatever the uh, the, uh, the annuals were um, were items of luxury. Uh, that's why the Bible talks about you know a harlot being sold for an ephah of barley. It's not because harlots were cheap; it's because barley was expensive. And you know when you have to when you have to plow with a stick uh, by hand or behind an ox, and then you have to hand cut, hand flail, hand winnow, and then try to store it in clay pots to keep the rats out of it. Historically, grain was extremely, extremely expensive, and so, um, so, so the, the the indigenous the the uh, the ecology that the Europeans entered here in North America uh, was an was an extremely manicured ecology. We know that now uh, from. From information we had from California to Virginia, these were not wild places. Now, uh, so they were managed by people. They were also managed by by predators and prey and fire. And so the large herds of bison, for example, um, were virtually nationwide, and um, and they moved based on. Uh, predation on the fly cycle, on the uh, seasonal cycle, you know, rain, cold, hot, that sort of thing. And so they, you know, they, they moved across the landscape. And so this kind of moving kind of thing was, a, you know, was a big deal. And so today, today, if we are going to mimic that incredibly abundant, productive, resourceful, primitive uh, landscape. I'm calling it primitive rather than wild, just to not get caught in, in uh, hardening of the categories. Um, if we're going to duplicate that, we need, we need to look at, so what's the mainstay? Well, the mainstay is herbivores. What's the main vegetation? It's grass and trees, uh, grass primarily. With intermittent trees, they're what we know as, as silvo silvo pasture, um, and and what about those animals? Well, they move around; they don't stay in one place. And how does the grass, you know, feed itself? Well, it feeds itself with the manure of what was produced on it. So nature doesn't move carbon very far. It has an extremely uh, closed loop fertility cycle. So so the fertility generated on spot A stays at spot A. Uh, you don't ship, you know, you don't ship carbon long distances. And so these principles are templates of natural pattern. Um, and, and as domestic, you know, domestic food producers today, um, when we tap into those patterns, our land becomes extremely more productive than it is with monocrops, Monospecies, factory farms, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and all you know, GMOs, 
mean, name your, you know, name your electric fixer from the industrial uh, toolbox. It's never as productive as an extremely complex, relationally oriented, uh, uh, you know, diversified, multi-speciated pattern that we see in in uh, in, in primitive ecologies. I think that primitive ecology, it like almost defies our modern imaginations, which is weird because you'd think that, you know, as modern people, we can imagine more than our ancestors could. But uh, to think that there used to be flocks of birds so large that they would blot out the sky for three days and that there would be herds of millions of bison and millions of beavers on the east coast right like well th- those beavers were put down in new mexico in new mexico uh there was th- there were uh, massive beavers we've actually found skeletons of beavers that are the size of volkswagen automobiles uh <laughs> you know the, the, the 200 million beavers that were here pre-european those beavers um actually made eight percent of of the land base of what is today the U.S., 8% water. Today we're, you know, less than 1% water. And so uh, you just imagine what it would mean for uh, everything from wildlife to riparian habitat to uh, to to tempering out the, uh, you know, a heat sink uh, because the land heats up so fast, water doesn't. You know, heat mass, I mean, the hydrologic cycle, the flooding cycle. I mean, all of these things were were um, you know were dealt with, you know, uh, uh, by these things. And of course, you know, the Native Americans they didn't wear polyethylene. They didn't wear petroleum. They wore beaver pelts and and uh, you know deer skin and and had buffalo rugs. And I mean, uh, um, you know, bison were essentially a a walking supermarket. They provided shelter. They provided tools. You know the uh, the, the the shoulder blade, the scapula, uh, w- w- scapula was a um, uh, was a was a hoe. Uh, they provided uh, cordage. Their um, sinews, uh, their tendons were were uh, rot resistant cordage, so you could you know stick a a handle on a on a shoulder blade and use it for a hoe. Uh, the little little bones were needles for needle and thread. Uh, of course, you ate the meat. You ate the, you know, the organs. Um, you know, it was it was literally a it literally provided everything that a person needed um, to live on. And there was no landfill and nothing to throw away. Everything decomposed. I mean, it was it was, it was an amazing, um, you know, an amazing thing. And and I think just to stop sometimes and put down the People magazine, forget about the Kardashians for a minute, and let yourself just daydream about that that primitive ecology, the abundance and living on that landscape uh, is, is I think it I think it does your soul good. I think I think it really does. It reminds me uh, in the Bible there's this creature talked about in Job called the behemoth and it's it's like I wonder is that just a bigger version of an animal that we've you know just killed off most of its, living relatives and but like it was just normal you know thousand years back i don't know yeah i 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's millions of uh, you know, everybody's got their uh, their idea about it. But I mean, uh, I mean, there's Leviathan too, you know, um, and they're generally thought of as a sea creature, blue whale maybe, uh, maybe some other whale. Uh, but sure, there were you know there were mastodons. I mean, we uh, we know there are foot you know human footprints next to dinosaur tracks uh, fossilized. So we know people were living at the time of the dinosaurs. So um, I get into a big uh, creation and evolution discussion here, but mm-hmm. um, but but you know mastodon mastodons you know are, are, have been discovered. I mean, they've just discovered this massive wolf in Siberia with the melting of the of the um, Arctic and Antarctic regions now, where, where Siberia is revealing um, all sorts of animals that have been there, you know, been frozen there for who knows how long, and some of them are quite, you know, large and unique, you know, compared to their to the cousins that we would see today. And so, you know, on our farm when we when we came, there were some there were some areas that had been, you know, what what you would call farmed out. I mean, they were, they were gullied, um, uh, eroded, rock, just unusable. Uh, uh, and, um, so, you know, we planted trees on them. We, we, we reforested about 60 acres when, when we came either by dispensing out the cows or direct planting of, of trees. And, um, and we, you know, we put brush down in the bottoms of the ditches and, and different things. And, uh, and, and and today, those are forested up. The pines are dying, of course, uh, in their natural successional uh, cycle. And black walnuts are now coming in there. Poplars, you know, much higher quality deciduous trees in our in our climax forest. In, in our area here, the, if you just abandon things, eventually forest will come, and eventually the forest will die. Uh, it will die, it, it, the, the trees will die, or fire will take them, or something. And it will start over. And so, um, and so the Native Americans actually uh, used fire a lot to weed out junky trees, weak trees, diseased trees, crooked trees, um, and, and create these uh, wide spacings to create these uh, silver pastures. So the trees were spaced far enough that you actually had pasture because the Indians couldn't eat trees, but they could eat bison that ate grass. They could eat elk and deer and uh, you know, the, the, everything that would, that would eat grass. So they, they wanted grass. They also wanted grass because they could see out to see if somebody was sneaking up on them. Uh, you know, dense forests. You know, the kind that, that um, you know you read about in Ichabod Crane that the, the deep the, the dense eastern forests were actually quite um, quite scary to the uh, Native Americans because you couldn't see who was coming up on you and then of course you know they were always fighting and feuding and having wars between the different tribes and so so they wanted grassland so they could you know view the landscape and see out Wow so that that 60 acres of pasture, the former, I guess you could say former pasture that you talked about that you let go back to forest. Um, what, like, compare that area to an area that you have consistently caressed? 
on your farm? Oh my, yeah. So so we've got uh, the the one especially one. It's about a about a six acre um, hill that was just big limestone rock outcroppings and and, and rocky, and it was kind of inaccessible. Uh, anyway, it, it was just so. so we just let it. We just let it go, and it gradually grew some trees. But you know, it's been there now sixty years, and of course, you know, the first trees that came up were pines. They're all dying now. There are a few uh, deciduous ones, but you know what? That that hillside, and it's not real steep. I mean, we're we're, we're thinking about reopening it for pasture now, um, but it's been there now sixty years, reforesting. And it has not grown half an inch of soil. I mean, the rocks are still there. Wow. It, 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 it doesn't really look – now, I mean, it, it's got trees on it. That's good. But it, it doesn't look the, – the land, the, the actual soil, does not look really any different than it did when I was a kid. But adjacent to it are – uh, you know, is a hillside that was similar, and we've grown grass and grazed it and put compost on it and done all the things that we do with pasture. And it's, you know, it's 8% organic matter and, and just incredibly productive and fertile and uh, growing soil. And, and so, and, and all the rock areas uh, that we've pastured now have 12 inches of soil on them. So, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, I've, I've seen this in my own lifetime, sitting here thinking that field actually would be much better today if we had not abandoned it and grown trees on it, but rather if we had, you know, uh, uh, pursued the, the grass and the grazing on it like we've done every place else. The thing is, back then, we didn't know what we know today. We didn't, we didn't, we were not moving the cows every day. We were not doing, we were not composting we were not doing all the things that we are today and so um so you know we couldn't we couldn't handle efficiently everything that we had and so there was no sense in you know pushing ourselves to to build fence on rocks and might as well just walk away from that and and find where you have some soil and and, and cobble together some uh, some fence posts and start grazing that so so for me I can tell you in my lifetime the comparison between the fertility increase where we have actively managed with livestock and, and perennial grasses is literally light years uh, different ecologically, uh, uh, positively ecologically, than the areas that we actually, um, that we actually abandoned. Yeah, I can also say we had a somewhat analogous situation on that we we uh, ended up renting another farm up north of us and it hadn't been grazed in like five to ten years and it looks fine if you're just like standing in the middle of it and or if you're just dri driving by it but as soon as our sheep ate all the dead grass on top so that they get down to the, the, what few juicy shoots remain there was like the plant spacing was atrocious. I mean, it was like four or five inches from one uh, leaf of grass to the next. Like it was, it was dead. It was like those five years hadn't done Jack Diddley to help yeah. anything revegetate. Whereas like our farm looks 
you know, like you said, like a light year is different than it did five years ago uh, when we started managing it, um, our original one. So yeah, like totally agree with you there. So like all this being said, you know, what do you feel like if you had to, to sum it up, like what's the danger of losing our farmland to wilderness? Why aren't we better letting it all go? Yeah, that's a, well, uh, if we, if we lose it all to wilderness, here's, here's the problem. If we, if we had the wilderness sizes and managed it like the Native Americans did, we would not be losing it. But you show me the abandoned the abandoned areas that we have abandoned to wilderness, and you show me the ones that are growing herds of a million bison. Show me the ones that are growing passenger pigeons. Show me the ones that are growing. I mean, let's, let's take wild turkeys, for example. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I, I just, I love wild turkeys. I mean, they're, they're the coolest thing. Uh, they're great big, you know, and, and of course, they, they taste great when you yeah. eat them. But um, uh, I just think they're a magnificent bird. I, I, I never tire of watching them uh, take flight in the woods, and I'm thinking, you've got a seven-foot wingspan. How in the world do you fly through the treetops without you just... <laughs> I have no idea. I wonder the same thing. It's Battering incredible to watch. To okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Turkey poults, that's a, that's a baby turkey. Turkey poults need 29% protein. That's really, really high. Like a chicken, a chicken is perfectly happy, a, a little chick, uh, chicken is perfectly happy at, you know, 18% protein. All right, so 29% protein is, is almost 100% bugs and insects. All right, deep woods, I mean, I mean, forest, does not really have that many bugs in it. It does not have that many uh, insects in it. And so, so turkeys are productive. They proliferate in edges. So turkeys, they love deep forest for, for cover to hide and roost in. But if they're going to have babies, they need fields. They need field edges that grow a lot of grasshoppers and crickets and all the stuff that grows in grass, all the little bugs and things that fly up in front of you as you walk through a field. They need that stuff in order to feed their poults. And so that's why uh, what I call um, uh, a landscape mosaic, where you have interspersed, you have riparian, forestal, and open, riparian, forestal, and open, and where you, what, what biologists call edge, almost all species require edge. And the problem is that when that, that national forests, state forests, wilderness areas, uh, uh, state parks, all of these things, there's nobody managing, managing them for a mosaic like the Native Americans did, which created the proliferating wildlife and abundance of animals which then, you know, digested and gave manure and all the cool, you know, pruning and all the neat things that the animals did, um, that is not proliferating in these wilderness areas because people are not managing it like the pre-Europeans did that created all the deep soils and, the, and, and what we have. 
And so this is this is the problem. Uh, look, if, if, you know, if we all, um, you know, if we, and, and the problem is now with the population the way it is and where we are, we can't return to those kinds of systems. We can't just light fires everywhere because we're going to burn up some Hollywood celebrities chalet on the side of a mountain. We can't do the sorts of thing. You know, a, a herd of two million bison running through the parking lot at Starbucks is probably not real compatible with, 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 you know, with our current state of affairs. And so you can't go back to wildness. But what we can do is we can, we can pull humbly and respectfully we can pull those patterns, those templates, from that primitive ecology, and we can reinstitute them today with high-tech electric fencing, water hoses, all sorts of cool things. The, 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 the wonderful choreography, the choreography of the multi-speciated dance on the landscape, we can now duplicate on small parcels, privately held parcels, even more accurately and perfectly than was done, you know, prehistorically, and that's a that's a that's a that's a marvelous idea of hope. It's a marvelous idea of reality, and it is in fact the the uh, whatever the trajectory or the the kind of thinking that actually makes sense uh, as we go into the future. Wow. I I think that is an amazing note to end on. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much um, for joining us on the show today. Uh, you are just about as much of an expert on wilderness abandonment as I could have ever hoped to get. So thank you. Um, and I wish you the best for the rest of this year uh, in Staunton, Virginia, and for whatever comes in the future to your farm. Thanks. Thank you. That's 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 super awesome. It's been a been a great uh, great visit with you, and um, I trust that the the show is helpful to put things in perspective for for folks who are, are truly seeking and yearning, but you know, but they just don't know. And uh, and and so I would I would invite people come out to the farm. You know, we have a twenty four seven three sixty five open door policy. Uh, our farm is eight eight hours within it's within eight hours of half of the U.S. population. So come visit, see for yourself, and then go go away and tell me you hate cows. <laughs> That's a pretty pretty uh, amazing invitation. Uh, that, that would be hard to pass up. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to get one of my friends who lives in uh, Washington D.C. to come visit you. So <laughs> great. I'm hoping he okay. listens to this. Calvin, Super. you're listening. The gauntlet's been thrown down. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Joel. Lunatics of the Greater Podcast World Unite. It's official. The Patreon page for this podcast is up and running. Check for a link in the episode description. Right now, the show is still teeny tiny. Just me in a dark basement in the wee hours of the morning. I need your financial support to keep producing this. If this show means anything to you, if you find some value in it, please consider donating. Maybe you've been enjoying this show since the beginning, 
when I personally told you about it. Maybe you just randomly tripped across the internet and fell face first into it. Maybe you were just spotted by your mom at McDonald's where she ripped the burger out of your mouth, handcuffed you, put you in the backseat of the minivan, and drove at perilously high speeds down the highway, all while blasting this podcast so loud you couldn't tell if I was talking or a banshee was screaming. However you came to find this podcast, your support, any support, would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode, or want to sponsor a future one, follow me on Twitter at Missouri Austin, or shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question, along with my answer, at the end of my next episode. If you live in the Missouri area and want to take the next step in radically protecting the health of you and your family, you can buy some of our pasture-raised food at my friend David's website, fedfromthefarm.com. That's F-E-D, fedfromthefarm.com, and use the offer code P-D-C-S-T, like podcast without the vowels, for $10 off your next order. I am shamelessly promoting this, but since I manage this farm and personally take care of the animals, this is the only operation I can wholeheartedly endorse. Don't be strangers. I want to hear from you. If you order food from fedforthefarm.com, put a note in the comment section that you heard about us through this podcast. I'm attempting something revolutionary here. Due to my city delivery schedule, I would consistently get to meet you. I would love to swap stories, share laughs, and hear the story of what convinced you to become a lunatic. If I see you a few times, I'll probably even invite you to our farm. We do those tours free of charge. If you really enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using Apple Podcasts and are feeling mighty generous with the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in a spotlight. And, as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin, that's E-L-O-I-G-N, at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. Fact-checking was done by the daring David Boatwright, and sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Stay with me, won't you? Thank you.